morning. How you guys doing today? I'm glad that you're here. Um, I got to tell you, we started something new at our house yesterday, and uh, a lot of you guys have already like done this in your lives, and those of you who are parents, you've had to figure out with me, hey, how do I introduce my children to the Star Wars? Like, because there's a lot of different options, and there's a lot of different ways that you can approach this. There's a lot of different like methods that people have, and there are like blogs and like rants written about how to introduce your children to Star Wars and which order you should do it. Now, listen, if we did it wrong, in your opinion, feel free to tell us. That's okay with me. Um, but we started yesterday and showed our three children um, Star Wars. And we began the way they did back in 1977 with A New Hope. So they have never seen Anakin Skywalker riding up in like some kind of cool car. They have never, they don't know anything about like Darth Maul. Like there's no kind of investigative reporting that's happened in their life that has led them to understand who this portion of Star Wars is. So we started right at the beginning, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Jabba the Hutt, the whole nine yards, and began with this narrative this part of, of a story that's really captured generations of people and like kids who are growing up now are captivated by the same story that, you know, my parents and their younger siblings watched in the movie theater. And it's still this journey that's happening. This month, we begin a brand new series. Um, it's on the life of an Old Testament character named Ruth. And we're going to approach this narrative from a couple of different places over the next month, really just four Sundays, and really attacking it a couple of different ways. Today, just starting right at the beginning and going verse by verse all the way through chapter one. And I'm excited about what God's going to teach us because I believe 100%, I believe 100% that the character of God like who he is and what it means to know him can be discovered and embraced and can infiltrate our lives through the narrative story of his people. And we can understand better the character of God through the narrative story of his people. Now, Heather Zimple is a discipleship pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and she says uh, something to the effect of this. Like, it's, it, it's, it, it's always adversity. Like, like, stories of great faith always begin with great adversity. And so we're going to dive in this morning to a story of faith that definitely begins with its share of adversity right at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 1, but we won't get very far before we have to unpack the story a little more and find out why these people are where they are and what it means to be them. Could you pray with me today as we open up God's Word and begin to dive in together? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for stories. Um, thank you that we're a, a storied people who who like to understand what, what narratives mean. Um, plots and ideas and action steps and character development. Um, and, and Father, thank you that we can find ourselves not only in these amazing stories, these hero stories, these like crazy Marvel comic book, like, like masters of the universe kind of stories. We can, we can dive in and, and let ourselves go and imagine the unimaginable Thank you for that. That's something that you put in us. Thank you that we also have these real life stories, um, the development of your people, um, the chronicles of names and families that you gave us through antiquity, because it's in those stories that we get to know you better. And God, we want to know you better. We want to be a people who, who know you better and, and know what it means to fully follow you. 
And so, Father, we pray today that in this story, um, in the story of some people who found themselves in a desperate situation, um, we would be able to discover not only who you are, but who you've called us to be um, as a result. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So Ruth, um, right in the middle of the Old Testament, it's part of what we call writings or actually history books, um, history books of God's people. And a lot of history books of God's people in the Old Testament are, are literally just generalizations where you get to know one or two characters and literally most of the storyline is the Israelites did this or the Hebrew children did this or the sons and daughters did this. So it's basically just a nation of people who we understand marching out of Egypt free from slavery about two million strong. Like two million people marching out onto dry ground and getting to go in a land called promise and inherit what God had given them. There's a couple of million people. So you read Israelites and you've got like a whole nation. But then every now and then God gives us like specific points of reference for one, two, or three people who are part of that nation. And isn't that kind of true of us? Like, we, we find ourselves as a part of big, overarching groups of people. Like, we're, we're a part of the, the, the United States. We're part of what it means to be American. But you're also part of, a lot of you, of what it means to be Southern. You know, we say that. Like, there's, this, there's some sort of characteristic that drives us to be the people. Some of you are not Southern and very proud of it. Well, you should be. Right on. Let's go. Like, you, you understand what it, it means to be part of a people. But then you also understand that you have a unique story and that you have a unique narrative that's a part of that too. So right at the beginning of Ruth, we read these words. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. And you have to stop right there because you have to figure out like, well, what's going on with this people? What's going on with, with, with what's happening in this story? It says, in the days when the judges ruled. And so you can go back one whole book of the Bible because it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And it's this period of time in, in the nation's history where they were slaves in Egypt. Moses, you know, let my people go, Pharaoh. And they got to walk out like the sea parted. The Egyptians drowned. They walked in. They wandered around. They complained for a long time. They ate bread that was called manna on the ground. They picked it up every morning and they had something to eat. Uh, they got quail a few times, which was really, really good. Water came out of a rock. Like God protected his people. But because they complained, he made them wander around that wilderness peninsula for like 40 years before he allowed them to see visually, to visualize, and to go into this land called promise that God had for them, and then they do it. So Moses died, and Joshua comes on the scene, and in the book of Judges chapter 2, we read that this is what happened when that did. So Joshua comes on the scene. He takes the people through the book of Joshua into the promised land. They overtake the cities, and now it belongs to them. Judges chapter 2 enters, and it's one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture for me. In verse 10, it says this, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Like scariest verse in all of the Bible. After that whole generation, Joshua and all his comrades, all the leaders, people who carried the ark across the river and landed in the city of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. We now own this place. It's flowing with milk and honey. The giants are gone and we get to live here. Whoa, look around. God gave us a beautiful city. They're right there. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a nice way of saying they died. Another generation grew up. We talk about a lot about the generations here. We talk about, well, the builders and the boomers and the Gen Xers. Like, I'm a Gen Xer. Like, that just told you how old I am. And then we got, like, the millennials and then, like, a whole other generations that are coming up. We talk a lot about generations. Well, after this whole generation of Joshua and his comrades died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. 
They didn't know him. Somehow or another, Joshua and that generation had failed at doing what God had prescribed for them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he says, pass this on. Like, talk about it when you're walking down the road, when you're waking up in the morning, when you're lying to bed at night, when you're eating around the table. Talk about this stuff. Bind these words that God had given us as like symbols on the doorposts and on, on the fronts of your forehead so that anytime somebody sees you, anytime somebody goes in your house or out of your house, they see the word of God and they know that it was the Lord who rescued you and your people from slavery in Egypt. But they let their whole generation go up to God happy and excited to meet their maker and left the generation behind them clueless about who God was and what he had done. So what happened is what you would imagine happened. It says that the Israelites in Joshua chapter 2 verse 11 did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Ashtoreths in his anger against Israel. It's like discipline. The Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. If you've read the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, that's what happened. People were disobedient, and so oh, God said, okay, that's great. You're going to be disobedient. I'm going to turn away, and I'm going to allow the Midianites to come in, and they're going to oppress you, which literally means to make you feel small. There are those of us, those of you out there who've, who've dealt with oppression, and you know what it means. It literally means to be made small, insignificant. Our, our nation was built, on, in a lot of ways, on the backs of oppressions. Like, we celebrate this month. It's February 3rd, like Black History Month. And I grew up in, in the first part of my life, the first part of my childhood in elementary school in Montgomery, Alabama, learning the stories of a people who had literally been oppressed, taking field trips to Dr. Martin Luther King's church so that we could look around at the murals on the walls, and they weren't just paintings of, uh, of random characters. They were real people that for a long, long time had been made to feel small. God allowed this to happen in the book of Judges as a result of this disobedience in Israel's life. It says he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet still they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. For as long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God, God warned the people. He says, when you walk into the land that was flowing with milk and honey, be careful not to forget the Lord. He, he knew that they would be a forgetful people, and they were. And so during the time of Judges, the people struggled. And you can read about that struggle start to finish in the book of Judges. And you get to the book of Ruth, it's not just the people struggling, it's this family struggling. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And that's a problem because Moab is a country that the people of Israel were told not to have relationships with. And I can't tell you this morning where the people of Moab came from because it's positively are, maybe even beyond that rated. It's a story that comes from the book of Genesis chapter 19. And, and I really, I can't go there. You can go there on your own time, but be warned, it's a bad story. And that's where the Moabites came from. And the Moabites came from an incident that happened in the life of Lot, Abraham's nephew in the Old Testament. And it's a terrible occurrence. And God had literally prescribed for people, hey, you need to be careful. This, this group of Moabites, this people, like you can read about them in the book of 2 Kings, they worshiped a God called Chemosh. And the way that they did that was human sacrifice. Even an Old Testament king in the middle of distress sacrificed his own son as a way to honor the God of Chemosh and hope and pray that the Lord would relent on disaster and that they would win this battle. Can you imagine? These are a detestable people with detestable, dangerous worship practices, completely wicked. And God had specifically prescribed for them, don't mess with the country of Moab. And here's this guy, a man from Bethlehem in Judah. You know Bethlehem because we just had Christmas. Together with his wife and two sons, went to live, not just pass through, not just get too close to, but actually live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. That's the recognizable name from this story. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. It says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons, which was not a bad place to be for a woman. Like, that happened often. There were widows that were left. And if you were a widow who was left um, without a husband, you first turned to the life of your sons. And that's why it was so incredibly important that people in Scripture have children. Like, it was, like, the number one thing that they could do. And so this woman, like, the number one thing that she could do for her husband was to give him a son. Not only give him a son so that he could be um, honorable in the community, but give him a son so that when he died, and statistically speaking, he probably would be for her. I think that happens today, too. It's really good to marry like a woman that's a little bit older than you so that you can die around the same time because chances are good that the guy's going to go first. It just happens. And so it was a really good thing for you to go ahead and have a son, not just to give your husband honor, but so that you would have somebody to take care of you when he was no longer able. That was a great system. And she had not one but two sons. And so that was okay. She was left with her two sons. Whew, crisis averted. He died that sad, I'll mourn, I'll grieve. Somebody will sit in sackcloth and ashes with me. I can wear the color black. I can put on burlap. It'll be okay. But then I'm all right because I've got my two sons. Then you read the next verse. They married. The two sons got married. That's great. She's getting some daughters-in-law. Moabite women. Wait a minute. They didn't just go live there. They like married there. Oh, they're treading on dangerous ground. They're disobeying God. These are, this is significant. This is not the people of Israel disobeying God in a big significant way like they did in the book of Judges. This is this specific family disobeying God by going and living in Moab. And not just living in Moab, but marrying into Moab. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah. I have often wondered if maybe that was where we get the name Oprah. It's just a deviation of the same word. And I think that'd be really special if Oprah was, in fact, a Bible name. We'll just go with it from there. One named Orpah. And the other named Ruth. Oh, this is the one that the book is named after. She's not even Jewish. You mean to tell me there's a book in my Bible? 
like a book that bears the name of a person, not just like First Kings and, and like First Chronicles. It's about a whole bunch of people who were Jewish. This is literally about a woman who, like, great, we can, we can get on board with that. Like, there should be books in the Bible named after women. That's great. But not non-Jewish women. We're talking about God's chosen people here. We're getting down just in the first couple of verses, and they've already admitted that the woman who the book was named after was not part of the chosen people of God. Her ancestors did not march out of Egypt free from slavery and safe because God sent Moses, let my people. He didn't say, let my Ruth go. She was Moabite. It was let the Israelites go. And here she is living in the country of Moab and a Jewish guy moves to town and now they're married. After they had lived there about 10 years. Wait a minute. So Elimelech and Naomi, they did not just go to Moab. Well, then he died there. They stayed for a decade after that. This wasn't just passing through Moab. This wasn't just staying there for a a, a little while so that you could have a meal while it was a famine in your home country. This was, we're going to build our life in a place that God told us to have nothing to do with. I just gulped a little bit. After they lived there about 10 years both Malon and Kilion also died. This is when it gets desperate. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That's it. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants, including Ruth and Orpah, may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation and And here they are, far from the assembly of the Lord, but they're in Naomi's family. So you head into verse 6, and the story takes a turn. It says, when Naomi heard in Moab, she she got word, checked Facebook, saw that there was like somebody Instagrammed a photo of like a big table full of food. And she's like, wait a minute, there's food there now. Uh, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, doesn't he always? Maybe there's been moments in your life where you just thought, okay, the Lord is not going to come to my aid, but he always does. Matthew chapter 14, I I, I picture this in my own life all the time. Peter's standing on the edge of the boat. The disciples see this figure walking to them on the water. They start to panic, and they're like, oh my goodness, there's a ghost that's walking towards us. And they're they're, they're literally terrified, and Jesus calls out and says, don't freak out. It's me, the Lord. And Peter's like, huh, getting on his glasses and saying, if it's really you, tell me to come out onto the water and walk towards you. And Jesus says, well, get out of the boat. And so Peter literally gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And you read the whole story, you know that he does it. And that's a huge success. I don't fault Peter for sinking, which he eventually did. I get excited because out of 12 people sitting on a boat, he's the only one who was bold enough to get out of it. And so Peter's walking on the water towards Jesus, but then the waves got too big and the wind got too strong and he started to sink. And of course, Jesus did what Jesus does. He rescues and he reached down his hand. And like I picture this grown man sinking in the water and Jesus doing nothing but reaching down and swooping him up like a four-year-old, like your four-year-old's body weight. Like I could just do that one-handed, like one-handed Jesus reaching down and picking up Peter. And what does he say to him in that moment? He says, why did you doubt? You you have little faith. Why did you doubt that I was going to take care of you, that I was going to rescue? And I'm picturing that mantra. If Jesus was standing right there, reaching out his hand towards Elimelech in the middle of the famine, that he thought, like, why did you doubt? You of little faith. 
at the first sign of hunger, at the first sign of like, wait a minute, we don't got enough food. Y'all can stay here if you want to, but I'm checking out because I'm going to, don't go to Moab. We were told not to go there. That's okay. I'm heading that direction because they have food and we don't. Why'd you go? You have little faith. And then verse six happens when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And I love that picture. I feel like that's happened a lot in the life of Rolling Hills. I've been here for almost 12 years now. And the stories that I have been the most excited about, like, like we, we, we throw a party when someone who literally has no clue who Jesus is finds Jesus, comes to Jesus, celebrates Jesus, embraces the salvation that's only found in Jesus. And I, I love those parties. I love those celebrations. I love the idea that people have been reached with the good news gospel of Jesus Christ because we've literally sat as eyewitnesses as God has moved and worked through the life of this local church. But you know what other story I love? I love the story of the kids who were raised in all this, the kids who went to something called vacation Bible school like I did, the kids who like grew up memorizing verses and like playing that game called Bible drill that you had to do in something called Sunday school where you were like the fastest kid to find a book of the Bible. Like they would literally make you hold it like this and you couldn't like creep down on the thumbs with your pages to be the one who found it first. I would try to cheat. That's like a confession moment. Like in third grade Bible drill, I tried to cheat. Like, don't do that, Nick Allen. God sees you. Your Sunday school teacher who is nearsighted may not, but the Lord did. And like, but that was a big deal. Like, I imagine that there have been some kids who have come through the life of our church and they were like excellent at Bible drill. And somewhere in a box, their mother has the ribbon to prove it. And, and somehow or another, some way or another, something got too big in high school, something got too scary in college, and they went the other direction toward Moab. And they started moving into a place that God had warned us not to move. Like in youth group, I learned, hey, there's some places you just don't go. But you know, we went there, some of us anyway. And I'm, I love the stories that I hear when, when, when somebody who had literally loved Jesus and walked through all these motions as a kid, life got too much, they turned away, maybe even for a period of 10 years, 15 years, but, but when something happens in their life that sparks a, 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 a revival of the gospel in their minds and they move back towards Jesus and they come back to the church and they encounter a community of faith and they begin to invest themselves in Christ's body once again love those stories. And I think that God specializes in those story of redemption. I think that some of you, I'm not reading your mail, but I promise some of you are that story of redemption. You live that life where you grew up knowing that, hey, we live in a land of milk and honey and God provided this for us. But then something happened in life that sent you on another direction. You moved a little bit too close to Moab, maybe even set up shop in whatever the Moab was of your undergraduate years. And you lived there for a while, but then something Jesus did to provide for you, moved you back in his direction. We celebrate the homecoming of people who see Jesus again and come back. They're on fire. They're committed. They're serving the Lord. We have pastors on our staff that live that story. And I imagine that that's what's going on right here in the book of Ruth for Naomi. Now, she's not excited. She's not celebrating. But with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set on a road that would eventually take her back to the land of Judah. We want to be a church that's ready for people to come back. 
No judgment. No like, no like, no like, you can't come back. You left. Too bad. You snooze, you lose. Like, we want to be a people that are already open-armed and waiting. Maybe even prodigal father running toward them when they top the hill. Saying, yeah, come back. It's good here. We got food here. We got water here. There's always enough here. Bring it on in. Bring it on in close. I love when somebody who was completely lost and had no clue who Jesus was finds him here, but I'm also really excited when somebody who had tasted it at one point, lost it for a second or even a decade, comes back to it. Naomi and her daughters-in-law are heading back to her house. Then in verse 8, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, it's getting a little confusing here. Like, I mean, you're, you're mobile. I'm, I'm Jewish. I can go back there, but... You two, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Listen, girls, you go back to your mama. Let her take care of you for a while. Mourn and grieve, you've been so kind to me. I pray that the Lord, who's she talking about? Her God, will show you kindness and let you remarry. Like, that'd be great for you. You go and take another husband. You don't worry about me. I'll be fine. You go back. And part of me says to myself, I wonder if there's any part of this story where Naomi's thinking, I can't take these Moabite girls back to my country. Somebody down the street's going to say, why'd you bring them here? Like, is there a little bit of her own Shame popping up in the story. But for whatever reason, she tells them, girls, go back. It's going to be better for you there. And then she kissed each of them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. They are committed, and they are strong. We're going to go back with you. But Naomi said, once again, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? We'll talk about this in coming weeks. It was, it was, a, it was a cultural expectation that... If, you, if your husband died, his brother might marry you. We'll get there in this series. It's going to be a little bit strange. But Naomi's just saying, I mean, am I going to have more sons? I'm old. That's not going to happen. Return home, my daughters, verse 12. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? We're just getting practical. Like, even if she did have another baby, it would be a baby. You're a grown woman. You're going to wait for him to grow up and turn to a marrying age. She's just being honest. Would you remain unmarried for them? Then those brothers would grow up and have to marry old ladies. That's a whole different circumstance. We have a name. Okay. No, my daughters. You thought I was going to say, I'm not going to say it. No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Pay attention to that and we'll come back. At this again, they they wept aloud. Then Orpah saw the writing on the wall. She kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. That's why we got a a name of a book called Ruth. We're not reading Orpah. Orpah chapter 1 this morning. Orpah turned back, went home. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, and this is the verse that you've heard before. Maybe you just went to a wedding where they said these words out loud. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. 
Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It's been a long time since they've seen her. A lot of years have passed. There's age on her face. There's grief and wisdom on her forehead. She's not the same girl that followed her husband. Two little boys in tow to a foreign country that many years ago. She replies in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. In the middle of famine, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, don't forget who she is, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's in the story of people, these people, that we come in contact with the character of God. So who are these people? Who, who is this Naomi? And what in the world is it that we can learn from her? Well, she's from the tribe of Judah and the town of Bethlehem. You don't have to go back to December to remember that we talked about that. Every year we talk about that. Every year some cultural expression happens in that, like a little town of Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born, from the tribe of Judah. And this is his ancestors. The Bible's specific about that. We learn right at the beginning that this Naomi, we don't have to get to the book of Matthew to find remnants and thoughts about Jesus. He's woven in right from the beginning, and this is one of those moments. The reason why the Bible is so clear, even in the Old Testament, to tell us that this family came from the tribe of Judah, that this family came from the town of Bethlehem, it's because it's reminding us that this family is going to be Christ's family and that we're going to see something unimaginable come out of that town one day. Bible's setting the stage for us to get to know Jesus even through these people, and not just these people, but foreign people named Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite arrived in Bethlehem, that town. That's where Naomi was from. She was from that clan that should sound very familiar to us. Prompted by famine, she and her husband left. And we want to give, we want to give Naomi like the get-out-of-jail-free card in this moment because in this society, in this culture, in this day and age, and in this people group, there was one person in charge of the life of every family, and that one person would have been the husband. Don't get mad. Don't throw tomatoes. Don't tell me that it's unfair. I didn't write the Bible. I'm just reading it. And I'm knowing that in that moment, if Elimelech said, hey, We don't have enough food here. Pack up your bags. Get the boys. We're going to Moab. Naomi did not have a choice. So regardless of the choice she had, regardless of the voice that she used, regardless of the pleader, we don't know that she pleaded with him to say, we're not supposed to go there. My mom told me when I was little, we're not supposed to go to Moab. We're not supposed to have any contact with the Ammonites. We don't know what kind of pressure she put on Elimelech. Probably none at all. She moved to the place that the prompted by the famine, she went to some place that was forbidden. She was the mother of two sons. She was doubly blessed. But then ultimately, she lost all three, which meant no husband, 
No boy number one. No boy number two. She was thrice cursed. According to their understanding of what it meant to lose something, she was cursed. She's the only one in the story who made both journeys. I've been doing a Bible study ever since we knew that this was going to be our next series in the life of Rolling Hills. And I'm just going to tell you, it's a women's Bible study, and I've loved every minute of it. Um, It's written, gosh, I think about a decade ago by our own Kelly Mentor, who attends here and serves here in so many different capacities. But I'm literally going through the book of the roof, verse by verse by verse, reading stories and recipes. There's recipes in here, which is kind of cool. Um, Studying scripture and cross-references, and that's one of the points that she makes early on. Naomi, only one in this story to make both journeys only one in the story to have that opportunity to return. That meant that Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, who also didn't have a choice, they had to go where dad said go. They died in a place far from God. And here Naomi is, although she feels cursed, although she feels like a has-been, although she feels like God wasn't smiling on her, she had the opportunity to return. Only one to get to make both journeys I look at her life, and I ask myself this question. I wrote it down in my notes. Like, when things go wrong, it's in your notes this morning, too, because I look in my Bible study, I write down questions for myself, and then I pass them on to you. When things go wrong in your life, when you're desperate, when there's famine, when there's calamity, when something's falling apart, does your direction, does my direction lead me to, does it move me toward Jesus? Or, Or does it compel me away from him. Does your direction lead you to or move you from the Lord? In this case, Naomi's direction, Elimelech's direction, calamity happened and their direction moved them away from the Lord. I want to be a person that in the middle of crisis, I want to be a person that when I get bad news, I want to be a person that when the sky starts to fall, I move even closer to Jesus. Sally, that's not what happens. In the lives of a lot of believers, in the lives of a lot of people who proclaim Christ, in the lives of a lot of people who who seem like they're just pursuing Jesus with every, in the lives of a lot of believers that we want to emulate our life after, bad stuff happens and and they throw it in. Okay, that's great. Like, I was going to follow you this far, Jesus, but then you let that happen in my life, I'm out. I was going to follow you this far, Jesus, but then you let disaster happen and, and somebody that... Gosh, whatever it is, I'm checked out because God would not have allowed, if God was good, that wouldn't have happened to me. If God was good, he wouldn't have allowed that in my life. If God was sovereign, if God was in control, I can't trust a God like that. Was this what was going on in Elimelech and Naomi? Were they sitting there going, God, you said you were going to take care of us. There was a land flowing with milk and honey. Now we don't have no milk. Now we don't have no honey. We're out. I want to be a person that when the milk and honey runs out, I still love the Jesus who gave me the milk and honey in the first place and who faithfully believes and understands that he'll give it to me again if I remain. Imagine the celebration when God came back to the community and provided for them once again. Naomi had to hear that second hand. She had to hear that blessing from afar, which who even knows how long it took for that news to have gotten to her. They had probably eaten themselves sick on all the blessing that God had provided before she even heard that God had once again provided for his people. She missed that moment when the famine was over and when the feast began again. She had to hear about God's blessing in that moment secondhand. You know who didn't have to hear about it secondhand? The people who stayed. 
I don't want to be somebody who stays, even in the famine, even if I die by the famine, even if I'm stuck in the famine, I'm going to leave my family right there where Jesus is, giving us blessing again so that they're ready for it, so that they, can, so that they don't have to get it secondhand when God provides again, and he always provides again. I want calamity and desperation and difficulty in my life to move me closer to God, not farther from him. Where's your direction when bad stuff happens? We all have these tendencies, these like things that are true about us. I've been doing this Enneagram kind of research, just dabbling in it, just dipping my toe in the idea of Enneagram and getting excited about what that is. I'm like a, a reluctantly con- confessing three, which means it, I think three is a bad one. You're an achiever. It makes you sound like you're just out to climb some kind of ladder and you really are only out for yourself. And so I don't like always want to share that, but that's what I am. But I learned that these arrows on the diagram, maybe you've never looked at it and you don't care, but we have tendencies, right? And so a three, whenever they're in a time of stress, in a time of difficulty, their tendency is to move up to a nine, which is a peacemaker. And you're not the good side of a peacemaker when you're stressed out. You're like the apathetic, hands-off, I don't even care what happens kind of peacemaker. It seems like you're getting out of the mess, but you're getting out of the mess because you're so stressed out by the mess. Like an achiever who is stressed is apathetic. We don't want that. Conversely, when I'm in a time of growth, when I'm in a time of health, when I'm in a time of like vacation, I, I move over to loyalist. Loyalist is just committed, wants the good of other people. Doesn't really seem like what an achiever would do, but when you're an achiever that's in a really good place, you want the best of others. All Enneagram does is tell us what our tendencies are. You have tendencies, you have patterns, you have like default reactions to stuff in life. So when difficulty comes, what's your tendency? What's your default? Do you get close to God or do you slip and step away? We learn that from looking at this lady named Naomi. We understand a little bit more about ourselves even in that moment. Another question, when, when things go wrong, does your disposition point you toward or deter you from Jesus? Twice in this passage of Scripture, and in verse 13 and in verse 20 and 21, she's like, it's bitter for me because the Lord's hand turned against me. And she's like, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. He's afflicted me. He's brought misfortune upon me. What's your disposition when something goes wrong? Not just your direction, where you're headed, but what are your thoughts and what are your reflections upon the goodness of God? Are you somebody that's able to literally sit and say, yep, it's a hard day, but God is sovereign and I still trust him? Or are you on the other side of the defense going, God turned his back on me? Her disposition changed. While Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitterness. For Naomi, it made her bitter and sad. But it also gave her an opportunity to proclaim that view of God's sovereignty. That he's in control even when bad things happen. You can learn something from Orpah and her story too. She's the Moabite woman who married uh, Elimelech and Naomi's son, Kilion. She made an early initial commitment to Naomi, but then at those promptings, she turned back. 
And I often wonder like, how, how strong my commitment is to the Lord. And I ask myself this question. When I make a move towards God, do I let the enemy or somebody else around me redirect my resolve, deter me, take me away? It says in 2 Corinthians ver, ver, chapter 11, verse 3, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It seemed like Orpah was in it to win it. And then because Naomi said not once but twice, go home, go back to your other gods, do this other thing, she shrunk back too. Kelly writes in this book that obedience to God is often, I'm going to substitute a word and say always, obedience to God is always wrought with a slew of obstacles that persuade us to change our minds. Orpah's mind was changed. She wasn't going to remain committed to Naomi and her God because her mind was changed. And I think that happens to people. I think it sometimes happens to us. We allow the enemy in this world, we allow distractions in this world, we allow difficulty in this world to change our minds and shrink us back from the commitment that Ruth made in this moment. That's our final character. Who is she? What do we learn from her story? She's a Moabite woman. The Bible is clear about that, reminding us over and over and over again. She is a foreigner, and not just any foreigner, but a dangerous foreigner. She is a Moabite woman who married Elimelech and Naomi's other son, Malon. And she made and was able to keep a very determined commitment to her mother-in-law and to God. And so I ask myself this question. When life leads me to loss, does my faith endure and produce an outrageous obedience in life? Because you know whose obedience is the most outrageous? Do you know whose obedience is the most attractive? Do you know whose level of faith and commitment and obedience to us is the most remarkable that we say, gosh, I want to have an obedience? The people who walk through tragedy and difficulty and yet remain faithful. Corey Tenboom survived a concentration camp and remained faithful. I mean, come on, is there a more attractive faith than that? Go back to the New Testament. Jesus' apostles and disciples burned, beaten, arrested, tried, convicted, and ultimately killed and still remained faithful. That's the kind of faith that's attractive to us. And so when I face loss, when I face difficulty, when there are threats to me following Jesus, when there are threats to the foundation that I've built my life on, when I'm struggling, like we talked last series, when the waves come and the waters rise and the winds blow, am I so foundationally secure in this word of God that I will remain faithfully obedient even in the midst of that because that's an outrageous, attractive obedience. And here's Ruth committing her life not only to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God. Did you catch that in verse 16? Your people will be my people. We're already, we're already, we're family, married your son, like you're my girl, but your God will be my God. Like that's it. Your God will be my God. And let me tell you something. If you make the God of this Bible your God, it means you abandon all other gods. It's in the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It's all over this Old Testament as a reminder, day after day after day. The people kept abandoning their God. How did they abandon their God? They allowed other gods to creep in. And when she committed herself not only to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God, she was saying, yes, I'm not going to just commit myself to your God. He's going to be my only God. She wasn't just saying, I'm going to go and move with you here. I'm leaving everything else 
behind. She wasn't just saying, I'm going to focus on your God and allow him to be one of the many influences in my life. She was leaving behind every detestable God, every detestable idol, every sinful practice that she was raised in in order to follow Naomi's God. We quote those verses in marriage ceremonies, and they're great. And this, this book will give us a hint of marriage pretty soon. In a couple of weeks, we'll read about a marriage. It's great. She gets remarried. It's a good thing. But ultimately, those words are about commitment to the Lord and commitment to the Lord's people. And she's a model for us of what that means. And the most amazing truth about her life and about this story is the very fact that she gets to be included in it. The very fact that she gets to be included in it. Back in Isaiah, or future Isaiah 56, God says to the eunuch and to the foreigner who comes near, let nobody keep them out. Allow them to come near to me. Like we've got this whole prohibition. Don't let the Ammonites and don't let the Moabites in because basically they're going to distract you from me. It happened in Solomon's life. But in Isaiah, it says one day, and it's because of Jesus, those Moabites, those Ammonites, those foreigners, those people that have no place within the family of God are going to get to invited to be in the very family of God. And who gets to do it? Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 53, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, who commit themselves to the Lord. And hold fast to that covenant. Ruth was a precursor of that moment because she bound herself to the Lord and held fast to that covenant. If we were all the way in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, consequently, verse 19 and 20, says you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone If we want to figure out who we are in the story, we're not Naomi. We're not part of the original hand-selected people of God. We're either Orpah or Ruth. The person who jumps into the commitment and steps away from God. Or the person who binds themselves to the Lord and remains faithful and true. We're going to continue to learn a lot from this story because we've been invited to be those foreigners, to be those strangers who, whatever happens in our life, bind ourselves to God. This is ultimately the story that contrasts bitter providence, difficulty in life that you know that somehow God is in charge of with, with sweet redemption and the invitation to follow Jesus wherever he goes, no matter what happens. We're invited through this story not only to know God, but to follow his son and to be people who make a commitment to him that lasts. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so eternally grateful for you and your life. And what we want to be is a people who are willing to follow you no matter what happens. We want to be people who declare, come what may, no matter what. When tough stuff occurs, I'm sticking with you. And so, Father, I pray that through this story and through this bit of inspiration that comes through 
a foreign girl named Ruth, we would be inspired to make our same top level, come what may, no matter what, I'm sticking with you commitment in life. For anyone in here, God, today who is coming to faith for the first time and understanding that you gave your son for them, Father, we celebrate that. For anyone here and present today, God, who is returning to you, coming back to you, wanting to renew a commitment to you, God, we celebrate that. Father, may we all, no matter where we are today, be a people who boldly declare, you're our God. Wherever you go, we'll go. No matter where that leads and no matter what happens along the way, we will not be a people who fall away and move another direction just because things are hard because we're committed to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.